Hey there, Business Generals family. Welcome to another super episode of the Business Generals podcast where I feature amazing guests and I ask in-depth questions about their entrepreneurial journey. You know, my belief is that it doesn't matter how your journey in life started. It's not that important because great or small, the important thing is how you finish. So whatever your situation today, I want you to know that you can get your hopes up, that you are good enough to chase your dreams. In today's show, family, I dig into how it all started for our feature guests, how they have built their brand, and I even get into all the juicy details about their big challenges, their growth moments, and all their big breakthroughs. So it's going to be an amazing show. I actually selfishly started this podcast because I love to hear how entrepreneurs did it, and I wanted to ask the questions for myself. So really... I am the number one student, so get ready for amazing coaching tips, family, to help you maximize your business dreams. Welcome and thank you for joining me here on the Business Generals Podcast, where I chat with amazing entrepreneurs five days a week. Davis Mutabo here, your host. Super excited to bring you today's feature guest, Mr. David Hodgson. David, are you ready to share your entrepreneurial story? Yeah, certainly am, Davis. Go ahead, mate. David is the founder and managing director of Paladin Group, a multi-million dollar diverse group of companies spread across many sectors of the Australian economy, including mining, financial services, infrastructure, and property. David sits on advisory boards and committees of financial institutions and other recognized brands. He also travels the world as a sought-after speaker and lecturer. David, before we talk business, perhaps let's take 30 seconds to tell us who is David Hodgson, just a little bit about your non-business personal background. Yeah, certainly. Okay, I grew up in Africa. Uh, initially, my formative years were in Zambia uh, during the late 1950s, and I played with all the black kids. I didn't have any white friends, uh, so my first language was actually Bemba. And uh, parents moved to what was then Rhodesia in the early 60s, and of course, I went and found the black kids there, and my first language became Shona. So, uh, but they sent me to boarding school um, also in the early 60s and the, the boarding school was right down in South Africa in the southern tip in, in the Cape province where all the kids spoke Afrikaans and I went to go and find the black kids and I got beaten up for doing so because it was an apartheid uh, system. <laughs> so I was quite a lost uh, soul really because I, I you know, was rejected by all races and, and I thought I was rejected by my parents. So I grew up with a lot of rejection. But um, eventually, uh, when I was moved back to school in Rhodesia, I left, I left school and went to war because Rhodesia was at war with all of its neighboring countries. And um, I fought that war in the SAS, in the Special Forces, for four years, and then in the Salu Scouts for another four years, and then as a mercenary for two years. So for 10 years, I fought that war, and it was my day job. It was all I knew. Um, there was a ceasefire in 1980 and uh, Rhodesia became Zimbabwe so I stayed for another two years um, I, I had built I, I built up a significant fishing company one of the biggest in the nation a commercial fishing company and I also built up two mines an iolite mine and a tantalite mine um, in 1982 I came to Australia to try and find a market for the iolite iolite is a, is a type of sapphire and while I was here in Australia um, I got accused of blowing up a squadron of British Hawk jets back in Zimbabwe. Uh, I didn't blow them up, just, <laughs> just for your information. But uh, 
uh, I was accused of doing it, and so I could never go back. Um, uh, I hopped on the plane. My plane went back to Zim, but uh, it actually stopped in Singapore to refuel. So I hopped off there and asked for a tourist visa. I was given a visa, and I went and applied for a job as a commercial diver. So I knew nothing about commercial diving and saturation diving. I just lied my way into a job. Uh, I got the job. I learned how to dive in the workshops when everyone went home. I read all the manuals and eventually I became a saturation diver in the oil fields for the next four years, diving at 400 feet for 35 days at a time and so on. In 1986, we finally got into Australia and uh, we arrived in Perth and within about three weeks, I purchased a motorcycle business. It was a distressed asset, a run-down company. I think we paid about $80,000 and we built that company up so that on the, in fact, in the end of the second financial year, we had it up at a million and we took it over a million after that and kept it that way until we sold it. Um, I left Perth in the late 1980s and moved to the Athens Tablelands in North Queensland, spent 13 years up there building business and so on, sold that and then moved to the Sunshine Coast in 2001. And it was at the Sunshine Coast that we formed Paladin Corporation, and we've now grown that into a $460 million enterprise. Wow, that is fantastic, and thank you for sharing that story. I personally grew up in Zambia. I was born there, and uh, my first language was Bamba as well, so very interesting to meet somebody like yourself right across the other tip of the world um, with a similar background. But um, there's lots of things to latch onto there, but I just want to touch on... Um, your motorcycle business. So you came from Singapore, you came into Australia, first time in, and you straight away decided to buy a business rather than get a job. Um, so just walk us through your mindset around um, why you did that. Well, primarily, I, I never wanted a job. Um, strangely enough, I actually had to have a job to get into Australia to be sponsored, but I never ever took it up. Um, my mindset is I, I, I can't work for a wage. I don't want to know at the end of the month what I'm going to earn. I don't want the boundaries and the restrictions set up by a job. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a natural entrepreneur. It's just in my DNA. And so I always look to find something that I can grow uh, typically, a distressed asset in business is, uh, or even the even today, is a target for us. We we would go for distressed assets, and that's what that motorcycle business was. I knew that I could multiply it. I didn't. I knew nothing about motorbikes other than they were good fun. I enjoyed riding them in the bush in in uh, Zimbabwe, but I didn't know the business. I didn't actually need to know the business. It was more a case of. Uh, I understood that this was distressed and therefore I could build it up and multiply it. And, and those are my drivers. I, I have to be able to multiply a business, otherwise I'm not interested in it. Now, that's very interesting. How do you identify a distressed business? For instance, if we just stick on the motorcycle business, because I think it, it's in a good range, you know, $80,000. I'm not sure whether you get motorcycle businesses for that price anymore, but I just want that sort of philosophy that somebody can learn from. So how did you identify it as a distressed business, David? Okay, so th this particular one was a business for sale um, that I, I looked I was looking in the newspaper at business brokerages and lots of them were going for top dollar and so on. This particular one was underpriced 
Uh, and when I looked into it, I realized that in the past it had been much more profitable. Uh, it had been significantly profitable, but the owner, it was across the road from the Victoria Park Hotel, and the owner was spending a lot of time in the pub, but the owner was drinking too much. Uh, it was a case of his marriage was falling apart, and his wife had uh, put down, laid down the law and said, if you don't get out of here and move away from that pub, um, we're, going to, we're not going to be together. So with all of those dynamics and the fact that it had been big and that the competition was big, um, I realized that, okay, here's an opportunity to get some more competition into the marketplace, rebuild what was once big. So that's pretty much the definition of a distressed asset. Usually, uh, it's not usually the alcohol thing, it's usually unsustainable debt and so on, as we often find in modern day businesses. That, that pull a business down and, and create opportunities for entrepreneurs to take over or acquire. But in this case, it was more the booze that was actually the problem. So, uh, uh, yeah, that was the reason why we were able to multiply it so well. Right. Um, now, before I get into sort of the mechanics, just high level of how you did that, I just want to quickly confirm, because I've been looking with some of my business partners at, you know, different business opportunities that are available in the marketplace, and sometimes you find the distressed businesses, the numbers are not available. Um, and I know you're probably still in a similar type market, probably at a bigger level, but for the smaller businesses and for the smaller entrepreneur, how would you help them just navigate that process where the seller doesn't have audited accounts, for instance? How do they go about verifying those numbers? Yeah, okay. So most small businesses are not going to have audited accounts. Uh, typically, you know, they're non-reporting entities from the point of view of compulsory orders. So you, that starts with your public companies. Uh, some of the small ones uh, or private companies will have if they had started off with the intention of eventually listing. But generally speaking, they don't have audited accounts. So it's a case of digging, you know, uh, sitting with the owners or the vendors and going through their financials, uh, potentially meeting with their accountants and going through their financials. Um, and then comes the other side of it, which is the market research. Is there is there demand? Can I can I take this product to a higher level uh, or service to a higher level? Um, it's it, there's a lot of common sense in it. Uh, I, I never ever accept the word of the vendor or the broker because obviously they have vested interests. So I need to check everything out. These days, you know, you can you can log on to the tax, get them to sit with them, and go onto the tax portal, and see what they've actually lodged over the years uh, on their tax returns and so on. So there's, there's a lot of ways of doing it. You can employ professional. Uh, researchers to look into a market sector for you and then come back with data and tell you what the demand is and what the likelihood of, of prospering the business is. And then comes the, are you up to it? I mean, my side is, you know, do I want to do this? Am I going to have to micromanage it? Do I need to apply all of my energies? Uh, is it going to take every day of my life? So there's the side of it, not, not only the due diligence, but the other side of it, am I determined enough to make it work? Because it's always going to be a major big job. Mm, I love that, and thank you for sharing that. I think that will really be valuable information um, for those who are, you know, following this story. Uh, I think that's very important because you've got to do that due diligence. You've got to test the business from an external perspective, from an internal perspective. What have they lodged with state authorities, and then just corroborate that information. And a little bit of gut feel always um, comes into play. Um, David, just share a little bit about the business sectors that you're currently involved in at the Palladian Group. 
Okay, so the, the sectors that we're involved in are energy, so we have uh, significant ownership of a thermal coal mine in Tasmania. We're involved in IT. We have significant ownership of an IT group in um, Brisbane. Uh, we also have significant ownership in water infrastructure company. We do hydroelectric schemes in Papua New Guinea and the Asia-Pacific region. Then we're heavily involved in merchant banking and financial services. Uh, and we're also in, we, we have a large um, health and fitness club in Canberra. So those are the sectors. We chose those because other than health and fitness, the others we chose because we wanted to be in sectors that are largely resistant to economic downturn. We wanted to immunize ourselves as much as possible to economic downturn. Uh, health and fitness obviously isn't. It's, it was our first acquisition, just a small one, two and a half million. And uh, uh, it's probably something I wouldn't do again because it's discretionary spending. But all of the others, we had good reason to be there. Coal mining, for example, we went into that uh, in 2011 because we knew it was a startup. Uh, it was uh, it was valued at about 100 mil. If we put in 25 mil, they were willing to give us 25 uh, 20% of the company. So um, we knew that if we then got all of the statutory approvals, the value would probably quadruple. And it did. So by the time we got stat approvals through uh, two years later, the company was revalued, uh, professionally revalued at 420 million. And by that time, we owned 50% of it. So this is the multiplying effect that, that I'm talking about. Um, IT, um, the company in Brisbane has world-leading software in EME, which is electromagnetic emissions. So all of these uh, microwave towers uh, that your telephone talks to, they all emit radiation and they need to be reported on for compliance purposes. So um, Europe has not had its towers reported on. There are over a million towers. It costs over a thousand euro per, per tower. Therefore, it's over a billion dollar, a billion euro contract. Uh, we're very much the only company in the world now that can handle that. Um, we've uh, eliminated any opposition. There's only one small company in South Africa probably, but they're not really in opposition. So that contract was due in 2009, which is why we invested in this company in 2007 so that we could uh, 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 score that contract. The GFC postponed the contract to 2016 this month, actually July. And so we've, we've built this company up so that it is now ready to handle that contract uh, as it comes out this month. Um, we've also diversified that company so that it has software in the asset management uh, space for telcos and it's got different revenue streams coming in. So once again, huge opportunity to multiply the company and also we're in a sector that's growing and growing and growing and economic downturn doesn't affect your mobile phone as you probably know. You know, that, that's our philosophy on the sectors that we're in. David, that's amazing. Now, you obviously can't be an expert in all of these fields. How do you handle these investments and what's your philosophy around, around that you know, process for, for an entrepreneur who might be thinking, I can see an opportunity in this industry or in this sector, but I'm not an expert. I'm not going to touch it. How have you resolved that for yourself? Yeah. So th th there are different, obviously different types of entrepreneurs. Uh, some of them are specialists uh, in, in one area or one sector. Um, and some of us are not specialists in anything. I mean, you heard my little testimony. I'm, I'm fully trained to shoot people, but I have no idea how to, you know, <laughs> do much else. No degrees, no uni stuff to any great extent. So it was a case of, um, I'm building a corporation. 
therefore I need people with me that can run the company. So the companies are standalone. They all have their own CEOs. They all have their own MDs and so on and so on. And I apply the governance and I, obviously I want the righteousness in those companies because everyone that we bought into was a, was a crooked place. So we bring all the righteousness in, the governance in, and I'm sitting on the boards chairing some of them uh, and, and making sure the companies are run properly as opposed to micromanaging anything. Right. Okay. Talk to me about righteousness being brought into the company, into the marketplace. What do you mean by that? Well, I'm a Christian, and um, even though the, the first company we bought in Perth, uh, I wasn't driven by any form of vision other than prospering my family, but that changed uh, as I became a Christian, and I realized that the marketplace was a pretty crooked, corrupt place, um, and people were starving around, you know, even in Australia there was homelessness and poverty, there's trafficking, and obviously coming from Africa I saw it every day. And I realized that as I became a Christian, we had an obligation to deal with this, and we either had to deal with it at the level of the symptoms of it. So, you know, if there's, if there's homeless kids, well, let's, let's get an orphanage going. Or we could deal with it at the other level, the root cause of the problem, which was the greed that created people so poor they had to sell their children. So I thought, okay, I need to find a way to deal with this in the marketplace. And so every time we bought a business, the first thing I wanted to do was get rid of all the crooked self-centeredness that was in the company, all the corruption, and there was lots and lots of it in every company we bought. Literally, we've never found a company that we've bought that's been clean, sometimes overtly crooked. We, we set about changing the culture of the governance of the company, and then that filters down through into the workforce and so on, such that they understand that in every deal we do, everybody should prosper. And if they become a, a customer of ours or a business partner or whatever, they should prosper as a result of being with us. We should never create poor people. Uh, we should always make sure that we leave enough in a deal for everybody to be gleaning from us if necessary. And I also realized that we as entrepreneurs have a far greater obligation than, you know, mum and dad in the workforce because we have a capacity to create much more wealth. So it, we need to learn to care and to share Otherwise, the system will collapse. It always has collapsed and it always will collapse if we don't change the culture in the marketplace. So that's what I was referring to. Mm, that's very interesting. Um, now, you've talked about initially you were sort of moving after the prosperity of your own family, which most people do, and I think it's noble. Uh, and then at some point you, you look at a greater vision, which you're now focusing into now. How, how are you growing your businesses? Do you have a specific strategy or is it just you looking for opportunities when that right one comes up, you, you move into that space or how is that happening for your businesses today? Okay, so to answer that, I, I need to explain the broader vision and then every business or acquisition fits in under that vision. So essentially the vision that, that we as a corporation have is to create the first nation in the world that is a just nation uh, with, a, with, which is, with what we would call a preferred economy. So as a Christian, the biblical context of that is a sheep nation as opposed to a goat nation. So this is a nation that has eliminated greed, fear and corruption from its marketplace and has replaced it with caring, sharing and universal prosperity. 
And with that in mind, we lecture all over the world and lecture this year will reach about 2 million business people with our lecturing teaching on how that can be done. So it's not some Christianese concept, uh, uh, even though obviously it's in the Bible and so on, but it's a practical changing of culture in the marketplace to create a nation where everybody prospers so that we can set an example for the rest of the world. And it's very, very doable because it actually works. So with all of that in mind, knowing that 60% of my time is traveling to lecture, and I do it all for free, incidentally, it costs us well over a million dollars a year to run that organization that does all the lecturing. We never charge. I get offered 10 grand to talk for half an hour, never take it, pay our own way, and so on. Um, so I've, 60% of my time is doing that, and the other 40% is running a corporation. So I can't do anything that I've got to micromanage. So if opportunities come our way, and hundreds do come our way every year, all the ones that are going to take too much of my time, we aren't going to do. It's going in the bin. Uh, the ones that don't take a lot of my time that I think we can multiply without a lot of my attention, so I just apply the governance, those are the ones that we will do because they are conducive to our broader vision. The reason for the multiplication is because we are steadily setting up what we call cash cows, uh, revenue streams if you like, businesses that provide revenue that we can use to fund the initiatives that we have going within this nation to change culture. Some of these initiatives are very, very large infrastructure projects, or will be, and they will run at a loss for many years. Uh, that we're not driven by profit, we're driven by vision. So we create cash cows or revenue streams that can fund things that will run a loss if they will change culture in the, in the short to medium term. That's what we look for when we look for an acquisition or a business. It must not require micromanagement. It must be conducive to our broader vision. And that's how we go about initially looking at an opportunity. Mm. And that's great. I mean, you, you've worked really hard to build lots of capital in your businesses to allow you to be selective and make those choices and have that clear focus, which is still important even if somebody is just getting started. Uh, David, I want to just switch gears a little bit here. Um, a lot of people shy away from entrepreneurship because perhaps of fear of failure or just being um, very comfortable in that old mold of maybe just um, working for somebody else. When you're touring the world and lecturing and people come up to you and say, David, I know I should be in business, but I'm, I'm kind of feeling stuck in, in my job or uh, in a small corner business, I want to scale it. What's your coaching to these kind of questions? Okay, so the very first thing is that failure is a learning curve. It's, it's a good thing. Uh, uh, you know, Richard Branston, you name it, all of these guys failed several times before they did well. Uh, so did we. I mean, when I came to the Sunshine Coast in 2001, we had nothing. We had our business on the Atherton Tablelands had, had failed, okay, um, and we'd sold our clothes. We'd sold our cups and saucers, we'd sold everything the last thing we had left, if there was eBay, I would have eBayed the dogs to, to get some money, and we, we limped down to the Sunshine Coast and started again with nothing, we started with $76,000 worth of credit card debt and we built a $100 million business within two years and seven months my point is that don't be worried about failure, it's an excellent part of learning secondly is, it's who dares wins um, that's the SAS motto it's my, my, I believe that 100%. If you don't take an opportunity and get on with it, you'll never know. The best thing is not to die wondering. It's just who dares wins, hook in and go for it. A lot of entrepreneurs 
probably fail because they don't persevere. They're not tenacious. Um, you, you've got to have tenacity. You've got to get up. Uh, I once saw a, a saying in an old farmhouse in Rhodesia when I was a mercenary. The family had been killed by terrorists, and I was asked by a young girl to go and get the cattle out. So she, she was the last surviving member of her family, and the whole that part of the country was overrun. The enemy had overrun the country, and I went in as a mercenary to get cattle out so we could sell them, so she could fund her boarding school. That, that's how desperate this young lady was. But when I got to the farmhouse, there was a, a sticker on the wall where the telephone had been. The phone had been blown away by an RPG-7 rocket, but strangely enough, the saying had survived right in amongst all the burnt and ashes and stuff sitting on a brick on the, uh, what was left standing. And it said, it's not he who gets knocked down that loses, but he who fails to get up. And I'll, I'll never forget the impact of that, thinking of that young girl at school, her whole family was dead, wiped out, and she was going to succeed. You know, she had to employ a mercenary to go and get your cattle. You know, it was, it was an amazing thing. So that stuck in my mind. So for, you know, budding entrepreneurs, never give up. If you give up, that's what failure is. Failure is not coming unstuck and going broke and so on. Failure is giving up. So just don't give up. Overcome the mindset of failure. Don't, don't treat it as failure. It's just a learning curve. Mm. Um, what, what would you say was your biggest um, point of um, disappointment or where you felt like giving up and just throwing it all in? Uh, my biggest disappointment was ending up with nothing when I had a business in the on the Atherton Tablelands. I'll explain briefly what happened there. So for non-Christian people, you'll have to bear with this. But uh, as a Christian, this is what happened. Uh, I was given a prophetic word in our church up there to move down to uh, Caloundra on the Sunshine Coast and help a certain pastor build a church here. And, you know, by name. So And the person who gave that word to me was very accurate and uh, had a strong history. I didn't leave. I took that on board but didn't move because... I was on the board of that church and I saw how much money was coming into it and I knew how much money we were putting into it as a big business. And I thought, if I leave, this church will collapse. Um, so I'm not leaving. I, I'll stay here and run my business. And, you know, God will look after me. I'm a Christian. I'm funding the church and doing all the fancy things Christians are supposed to do. Well, God didn't look after me because I probably wasn't doing what he had asked or told me to do through this other guy. So essentially then I was running a mobile phone brokerage. It was a big company. We had lots of people working for us. We had offices all over the Tablelands and in Cairns and so on. And that was doing very well. But they brought out the prepaid cards. They brought the, the big carriers, Vodafone, Optus, Telstra, came to me one by one and said, you need to move your office downstairs and you need to sell the new smartphones that are coming out because if you carry on selling plans in your office up there, you won't have any customers. We've done this overseas. We know I couldn't move downstairs because I had all these leases and so on. And so I thought, once again, you know, God will look after me. But as they brought out the phones and the prepaid cards, we lost our customers and more and more and more lost them until eventually it took us two years for me to realize I better sell up and move down and do what I've been told to do as a Christian. So that point of having nothing in my late 40s, still had three kids at home in 2001 and having to start all over again thinking, why am I bother being a Christian? It's too hard to fund all these things to keep the country righteous and so on and so on. And that to me was a huge disappointment. 
But strangely enough, after I arrived here on the Sunshine Coast, it was only three weeks later, a visiting uh, pastor who didn't know me called me out of the audience of the church, and uh, he was a very senior guy, and he called me out and said, that uh, the Lord has shown me this finance is written all over you, and you will write six-figure checks for this church in the near future. So you'll write $100,000 checks. We had no money. I was a builder's laborer. I'd got a job as a builder's laborer. I was earning $15 an hour. I had 76 grand worth of credit card debt. And now suddenly I'm going to write $100,000 checks for this church. Well, I took that challenge on. And within two years and seven months, we had a $100 million business. So the disappointment was losing everything, but it was quickly revived and uh, refreshed once I realized we actually had a, a mission, a job, an assignment to do. Mm, so it's that re- aligning yourself with the assignment, but being humble enough to go back to being a laborer, which can be very painful coming from um, a very successful business background. Um, David, take us through to your biggest breakthrough moment during that two-year period, I would imagine, um, where you thought, where things just took off, how did that transpire and how how did it look like? Okay, so once again, this is uh, from my Christian perspective. This is physically what happened. Um, When I got that prophetic word to um, that I would write six-figure checks, well, the first thing is let's go home, sit with my wife and figure out how are we going to do this with no money. Uh, I'm an old man on, you know, uh, on a five, on $15 an hour. It was a case of how will we do this in this country. So we looked in the newspaper and said, oh, you can become a real estate agent, you can become this, you can become that. Which one's the quickest? And we looked there and saw that a certain company, Aussie Home Loans, was looking for a finance broker. And they only wanted one uh, at that time. And they had an ad in the paper. So I thought, well, I better learn how money works. Let's do that. So I applied for the job, and obviously there were hundreds of people applying for it, and they interviewed people on the phone, did psychiatric tests on the phone, all sorts of things, and eliminated it down to 20 people. So now finally there's 20 of us going for this interview in Brisbane. I had no clothes. I'd sold all of my clothes. So I had to borrow clothes from my pastor, and he's shorter than me, so his jacket was halfway up my arms, and everything looked like it came from the St. Vinnie's. You know, it was all second-hand clothes. And I went for this interview in Brisbane. I got there late because I got lost in the big city. And uh, as I walked into the room in the high-rise, there were 19 other people sitting in there, all dressed up in their three-piece suits, all the uh, beautiful girls with their long eyelashes on and their suits and stuff. And I just chickened out. I looked at this and I was terrified. Uh, And I just turned and walked away. I thought, I'm not up to this. I'm a laborer. And I walked out of that room. And the lady that called me, excuse me, sir. And I said, no, I'm out of here. And I went into the ablutions and I was, I was washing my hands and looking in the mirror and even the ablutions were too fancy for me. But, you know, as I looked in the mirror, I felt this presence of God that came on me and, and I've never heard the audible voice of God. I'm not some Christian fruit loop type thing. You know, this is just physically what happened. It was almost like the Lord was shouting at me saying, where did you learn this fear? Why are you frightened of their clothes? Get back in there and take over. And, and my whole life unraveled in front of me everything that had happened all the fighting in the war all the boarding school all the bullying the getting bashed up in South Africa carrying my dead mates to their graves explaining it to their wives during the war years and so on and so on and uh, it all came back and suddenly I realized that this you know it was almost like the Lord was saying these are the threads of your life that I've woven into a mighty rope that nobody can break now get out there and take over 
So I went back out there in my scruffy clothes and I took over and I got the job and I went on to break their records for, for home loans for months after months after month. And, um, you know, that's not me. I'm not a sales guy, but Aussie Home Loans is actually a sales and marketing company, even though they do mortgages, they just their marketing and sales that gets them the loans. So that was the biggest breakthrough. The Lord had applied favor to what I was doing. And very quickly, I studied all the banks and uh, went into property development, formed two public companies, uh, all with the, the newfound knowledge of how finance works and what you can do and can't do, and very quickly built a $100 million company and quickly wrote six-figure checks for the church and so on. Wow, that is fascinating. And congratulations for for following your heart and following the promptings that you were that you were feeling at that point. Um, in 30 seconds, how would you explain um, how your day looks like today versus how it looked like sort of early on during your start as an entrepreneur, either a day or a week, if that's easier? Okay, so I'll do a day because my weeks are so diverse, traveling and so on. But assuming I'm here, um, I get up at 4 o'clock. Uh, I do 20 hours every day, seven days. So I, I have a 140-hour week. Um, I start at 4 a.m. My body just wakes up at 4, so I get up at 4. Um, I go and pray for an hour and, and study the, the Bible because I've got a lecture on stuff all around the world. That's how I, I do it. Then um, I go to the gym. So I've got a, a three-car garage that is converted into a gym. I'll train for an hour. Um, then I get into the house and um, you know have brekkie and so on. And then I'm either into the office or I'm into wherever I'm lecturing around the world. Um, all day is pretty much in the office or, or out doing disc, you know board meetings and so on. Um, I probably leave the office around about five-ish. Um, I get home. I do most of the cooking in our family because uh, my wife she works for me or with me here. She's the CFO of Paladin with a group of 36 companies. She does all of the basses and all of that for 36 companies, and she's also the MD of our big health club down in Canberra. So she's got a big full day as well. And I don't want to, you know, I'm a high energy person. She isn't. So when we get home, I want her to sit and relax, and, and I'll do all the cooking. Um, generally speaking, if I'm finished cooking and eating by about 8 o'clock, uh, I'll nick upstairs because I don't want to watch TV. I've never been hooked too much on, on things unless they docos and news of things. And um, then comes online, you know, the UK because we do business in Europe. And then, you know, early in the morning, the US comes online for us and so on. So generally speaking, I knock off around about 11.30 to midnight. That's my day. Wow, that's a huge day. <laughs> yeah, completely out of balance. The thing is, though, we anticipated building a corporation to fund various initiatives. We never, ever envisaged that we would be lecturing. I don't like public speaking. I don't like being the center of attention. Uh, but I'm doing it 60% of my time. So we didn't budget that time into what we built. And that side of it is growing and growing and growing. And that's really the assignment. So I need to keep doing it. But the reason... I have a 20-hour day is because we didn't allow for that. It came in later, and uh, we're kind of stuck with it. We need, we need more days in the week. Well, how do you rank these um, following words? Faith, fun, family, finances, friendships. Okay, so faith, family, friendships, finances, and fun. I have fun going through. Fun kind of happens going through all of them, though. Fantastic. That's good. David, do you invest in mentors? If yes, can you um, share who those are for you currently? So, uh, people mentoring me? Yes. 
Uh, no, I, I don't, but I strongly recommend it. The only reason I don't is because I, I just don't sit still long enough. Um, I have a lot of input from intercessors in, in, uh, in the prayer, praying for us and, and telling us what they, what they think uh, is, is happening, you know, what's going on in the business world for us. Um, but I don't have a, I've never had a mentor. Um, I often listen to, um, you know, w when I'm lecturing around the world at these big conferences, I meet all the other lecturers. So sometimes I listen to their work. Uh, guys like Lance Wall now um, occasionally listen to his work and so on. But uh, I'm so stretched for time that I don't read um, other than the Bible. I really don't read much. I'm interested in archaeology, so when I get a moment, I'll read up on the, you know, the, the history of humanity and so on. But generally speaking, I've never had a mentor. I, I strongly recommend it for people, though, because what we do through our lecturing is mentor thousands and now millions of people. And I'm not saying come to me for mentoring because I, I can't do one-on-one, -on -one, but uh, I know the value of it. And, and we, 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 that's what we do is, is train people all around the world on how to uh, build you know, the just economy and how to multiply their businesses and what are all the principles, and uh, both spiritual and, and physical principles. So from my point of view, mentoring is crucial. I've just never had one, but I think everyone should have one. Okay, that's, that's great. Um, we, we're just going to quickly bring this to a close, but I just want to ask you, best two books that are must-reads for entrepreneurs in your mind? Okay, so I, I've never read an entrepreneurial book, um, but I imagine uh, something by Richard Branston would probably be good because he's a serial entrepreneur. And I don't have a second one, unfortunately, Davis, because I've never read one and never paid any attention to it, unfortunately. <laughs> what is the best way for people to connect with you, David? If you want to connect with me, email is always the best. I'm, I'm not uh, a high-tech dude, so I'm not into Facebook. I'm on it. I think I've got thousands of friends, but I wouldn't know any of them. I wouldn't know how to use it. So uh, a lot of people connect with me by email. That's the only sort of medium that I can manage. Um, and usually when they want info from us, um, I allocate, I, I put them into whichever uh, area that we're lecturing. So we run Kingdom Investors or KI, which is the media, the, the organization that we use to lecture through around the world and there are various chapters all over Australia. So that's the best way to physically meet and chat to people and come to the lectures. They're always free and uh, they come in their hundreds. They're great for networking and so on. Um, uh, but usually the first point of contact is flick me an email and, and you know I'm pretty busy I'm usually booked down about three months in advance but I try and get to all emails by the end of the day otherwise they stack up and bank up and, and I'm never going to catch up so usually you'll get a reply in 24 hours Okay, that's great and Kingdom Investors chapters how do people find those? Have you got a website for us on that? There isn't a website because I never wanted to, to build it because I don't like public speaking but we realize that we do have to have one because, as I said, now we're reaching this year 2 million people. So uh, the website will be up very shortly, probably another three or four weeks. Um, it, it'll just be kingdominvestors.com, and on there will be where all the chapters are listed and, uh, and the contact person for each one. Very good. So people listening in, by the time you, this show goes on air, that website will potentially be online, and we're going to share that in our, in our show notes. David, before I ask my last question, I just wanted to acknowledge you for everything you are doing in the marketplace, all the lives that you are impacting, 
um, and for pursuing your dreams, which in turn helps others do the same. I've personally been in one of your lectures and I've found that, you know, you, you were very knowledgeable and um, very motivating to encourage each one of us who's in business to know that we should continue to do that. So more specifically, I want to just thank you for pouring out your words of wisdom to inspire the business generous community here on um, the show today. So I absolutely thank you. And now for the last question, when all is said and done, David, what legacy do you want to leave and be remembered for? No, never really thought of that, but I would probably like to be remembered for pioneering the first sheep nation in the world, uh, or certainly completing the assignment that that I've been given by God and and that everyone else, many other people have to do their assignments, but I would like to know that, or people to know that I did my assignment, put back into the community and created a benchmark just economy for the rest of the world to follow. Mm. Fantastic. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for hanging out with me and David today. Hope you had as much fun as I did. But more importantly, my hope is that you can get your hopes up that you are good enough to chase your dreams. Remember to head on over to businessgenerals.com for all the show notes. Just type David in the search bar and his show notes will pop up with everything that we talked about today. So that's businessgenerals.com. And to reach out to David, you just want to jump onto Kingdom Investors. Dot com for more information. David, thank you so much for being on the Business Generals podcast today and for sharing your story with us. And for that, we are grateful. You are a true business general. <laughs> Thanks, David. God bless. Hey, what's up, Business Generals family? Thank you for joining me and for listening to the Business Generals podcast. Connect with me at Davis Mutabwa. That's D-A-V-I-S-M-U-T-A-B-W-A. Connect with me on Facebook, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, and you can certainly find me at our podcast blog, businessgenerals.com. And while you're there, remember to access all the show notes, a ton of free resources, killer training, and so much more. Love you guys. Thank you for joining me. Ciao.